nothing to be done. I'm beginning to come round to that opinion. All my life I've tried to put it from me, saying, Vladimir, be reasonable. You haven't tried everything. And I resume the struggle. Do you have the time, Gogo? Do I have the time? It depends what it is you want me to do. I want you to tell me the time. Oh. It's two minutes to midnight. Are you sure? I was a moment ago. I'll check again. Yes, I'm sure of it now. Two minutes to midnight? For the moment. Wasn't it two minutes to midnight yesterday as well? I don't recall. You were there. I don't remember, and there's an end to it. Charming spot. Let's go. We can't. Why not? We're waiting for midnight. Ah, you're sure it was here? What? That we were told to wait. I was told to wait by that pyramid. Do you see any others? I'm not sure that was even there yesterday. Have you gone mad? Rome wasn't built in a day, you know. Neither was Egypt. It's two minutes to midnight. It's getting late. Or early, approaching from the other direction. Come on, Dee Dee, let's go. <laughs> We're waiting for midnight. It's important. When were we to arrive? Midnight. So what's the time? Two minutes to midnight. It was two minutes to midnight two minutes ago. At this rate, we'll never see morning. I have faith. The world keeps turning. When has it not? What? Kept turning. Well, it has to stop at some point. Why not today? That's gloomy. What time is it? I've told you what time it is. Why do you keep asking? Every time my answer is the same. It's the same time it was two minutes ago. It's the same time it was yesterday. Rest assured, Dee Dee, I will let you know the absolute moment our situation changes and it is not two minutes to midnight. It's just taking longer than I would have thought. How long do you think it'll take? Two minutes. Let's go. We can't. We're waiting for midnight. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Oodcast, the Ood One Out with me, Chris Sigma. Thank you so much for choosing us over other Doctor Who podcast. You're not choosing us over them. You can listen to loads. It's fine. But thank you that you're spending this particular moment listening to us. We're very excited to have you. And I'm very excited to have a guest host, an honorary Ood, Tom Selinski. Hi there. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? I'm all right. Excellent. Happy to be here. Oh, well, that's very nice. I'm glad. Now, Tom, why is it that I've asked you to be on this podcast? Well, we've done improv things together, haven't we? We have. Uh, including Doctor Who-themed improv things, along with other guest ouds uh, on this show. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're part of that Venn diagram of Doctor Who fan and... And, uh, and improviser. And improviser. But I can be one proudly. You're, I'm a bit older than you. I remember the dark times when this was a terrible secret and uh, you would sort of cast a sidelong glance at somebody like, w- was that a reference? 
am I among friends? But now we can, we can, we're all out of the closet. It's wonderful. We can wear our colours proudly. We can. Absolutely. Um, we are set to review the episode Pyramid at the End of the World, mm. which is the longest title by far this season. Yes. I mean, by far. It's never been more than two words before this yeah. point. So we have got a little, uh, I don't really know what to call it, a format, I guess. Mm. Three things that you liked or even loved mm. about the episode, and one thing that you thought could get a little bit better. Okay. Does that sound okay? Sounds perfect. One thing. All right. Well, so maybe I should say quickly that um, I don't. My my appreciation of Doctor episodes runs the full gamut. I'm not somebody, I'm afraid, who finds all Doctor Who is just marvelous. I can mm-hmm. be very critical. I was quite critical about last week. Uh, but I'm in quite a good mood this week, which is fortunate, <laughs> I think, for the tone of the podcast. The thing I'm going to say first is the the intricacy of what I'll call the chain of chance plotting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the sort of Rube Goldberg. It's a little bit like Final Destination, starting with the bag being shut in the door and this terrible, inexorable series of events, which you don't quite know as you watch it how it's going to unfold, but you know because you've seen stories before that it's going to end in something awful and it becomes increasingly clear, of course, that on this sort of this uh, twin-tracked plot that the end of the world predicted by the monks is going to be what Rachel Denning and Tony Gardner are doing in that lab. Mm. And I really appreciated the way that that's all worked through very, very carefully. It also reminded me of there's a, a book by, if I can get really kind of pretentious, a book by Stanislav Lem called The Chain of Chance, which is a kind of detective story about people dying in mysterious ways. And it turns out to be this extraordinary series of coincidences, <laughs> which is what makes it so hard to unravel. That's really exciting because it's, it's uh, it's it, uh, it's stimulating. It's complex. It's it's let's get this right way around. It's complex without being complicated. It's not hard to follow. It's not just bewildering, but it's sort of satisfyingly meaty. And I love the fact the doctor's looking in the wrong direction for such a long mm. part of the episode. That's really exciting as well. It really raises the stakes on the whole thing. Yeah, he buys the misdirection of the yeah, aliens, completely. doesn't he? Yeah, no, that is it is really beautiful. I I love that too. I really enjoyed the first Final Destination film before it got a bit crazy with that. I think whole... the first three have all got something to offer. Really, the second one is the only one that has an ending. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a brilliant setup. There's no ending possible. But the second one, if memory serves, has an ending. Right, where they're able to kind of I can't remember the details now, but do some deal with death to give death what it wants and then escape. One of the managers to escape unscathed. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm my favourite death in Final Destination. Various, just very quickly, is the one where they are in a car crash and a wooden spike comes through the headrest of the car but misses oh, the yes. person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when the guy comes to get them out with the jaws of de- the jaws with of the life. jaws of life, yeah. yeah, it activates the airbag <laughs> yes. which catapults his head back into the spike. That is brilliant. You've got to love the guy being trisected by the barbed wire fence as well, though, haven't you? Yeah, that's um, pretty amazing. <laughs> Probably not something that would happen in Doctor Who I quite not. as graphically. No. Um, fantastic. So that is a, a great first point. My first one is a very tiny point. Mm. I feel like it's nice when these things sometimes are really big and sometimes very small. I just like this one line. It's not my first dead planet. <laughs> yes. Because, you know, that's the first episode of the Daleks. Yeah. And I like that the Doctor knows what his episode titles are. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's just something really nice about that. And let me use that as a totem mm. that this uses the mythos well. There's little things in there that I really like. I feel like Capaldi's Doctor. Capaldi's a fan and Capaldi's Doctor 
is like the new first doctor. He's he's a cool first doctor because yeah. it's the start of a new regeneration cycle. First time he's been that old for a while. And I like the fact that he's sort of a rebooted William Hartnell in some ways. They're about the same age, aren't they? Mm. Capaldi now is about the same age as Hartnell was when he started playing the part. Absolutely, yeah. So I, I love that. I love the 12th Doctor now. I think the characterization has settled down. The performance is incredible. And he's just such a beautiful character. Mm. So that all stems from that first line. It's not my first dead planet. Was it last week we had the reference to the fluid link as well? That's right, yeah. yeah. I think some, someone would evidently be going back and watching... Doctor episodes from 1964. I mean, perhaps it's just in my head, but I feel like Stephen Moffat and Peter Capaldi sat down and said, okay, this is the last chance that the two of us have to crowbar in all of the fanboy references (laughs) that we want. So let's write a big list and we'll just tick them off as we get them into the season. Do you think we'll meet the the terrible Zodan at some point? (laughs) We can only hope. (laughs) I really hope so. Amazing. Mr. Hop like kangaroos. Two things. Okay, my second thing is, I don't quite know how to say it, because the episode doesn't mention it, and that's what's so good, which is that obviously the character of Erica is a little person, but it doesn't factor into the plot that she is at all. It's Mm. not something... The character isn't a little person because there's a plot function to it. She just is. It's not mentioned. And I just think... You need more of that, particularly in children's program. You need people that are diverse in a multitude of ways and that the, all of that falls under the category of normal. I feel like that's really important. And I'm so glad that Doctor Who's doing that. Obviously, by me mentioning it, I've short-circuited <laughs> yes. that. But I wanted to say that's that was that's well played. Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. I mean, there's, there's a principle of writing. Sometimes people call it the principle of parsimony. Mm-hmm. It's also kind of it's a sort of the reverse of Chekhov's gun, you know. So Chekhov's gun is if someone's going to fire a gun in Act Three, it needs to be hanging above the mantelpiece in Act One. Yeah. The corollary of that is don't put a gun a gun hanging over the mantelpiece unless someone is going to fire it later on. So casting Rachel Denning in that part violates the principle of parsimony because there's no need for her to be a little person. But that only calls attention to itself because we don't see people of restricted height playing roles on television often enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, they stand out because they are not very numerous in the population. But I think we're just sort of just kind of just getting past that with people of colour. It's, uh, it's, it's barely worth mentioning uh, that Bill isn't as white as Peter Capaldi. It's mm-hmm. barely worth mentioning. It did get mentioned when she was first cast, but it's, it, we don't expect it to be a major plot point. So it is. It is interesting, uh, but I sort of thought that I, I almost put that on my list. But I thought I. I think the point of it is we don't mention it. Yeah. End I, of edit. I agree. <laughs> I agree. It was, but I really wanted to say something. Yeah. But let's uh, let's stop talking about it yeah. now. <laughs> okay. So my second thing is uh, the moral dimension. I think it's one of the things that that uh, as a writer Peter Harness has been bringing to the program a lot, and I think it's one of the things that Doctor Who, even though it is a children's program can be very good at. Uh, off the top of my head, I was thinking of things like, well, the, the, the big obvious one is Genesis of the Daleks. Yeah. Getting kids to answer the question, like, if you could go back in time and kill Hitler, would you? Which is basically what the Time Lords have got the do I to have do. the right? Do I have the right? There's also things like Morgan Undead, which I remember being a story which particularly excited me when I watched it aged about 13 or 14. Because as well as being this really kind of 
uh, spooky sapphire and steel kind of story, as well as having this incredible situation of the stranger in the TARDIS, who uh, the companions believe to be the Doctor, and it's not. At the end, you have the Doctor deciding to commit suicide in order to release these other people from their pain. Mm-hmm. And that's really powerful. So you've got two really big moral dilemmas in this uh, episode, and it kind of it echoes similar things that Peter Hans did in the Zygon invasion, uh, the inversion, uh, and also Kill the Moon. Which is, first of all, do you do a deal with the monks? Yeah. Right. And then secondly, what's the price that you pay? Because the price that Bill pays is very different from the price that the uh, the UN Secretary General and the, the other the generals are paying. They're doing it because they think it'll save the world. Bill knows she's doing it to save one man. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's very, very different. So it's all these personal feelings and this enormous morality all mixed in together. And morality plays are really interesting. And it's one of the ways in which an adventure story can get an, a, an extra dimension. Do we think that this... <sighs> This idea of consent, I'm, I'm just not sure where it's going. Have you any thoughts on, on why the monks are so big on consent? Not really. I sort of wish they hadn't picked that word. It seems like a, a, a more political word that it needs to be. I don't know whether permission would have got any better. Um, it may simply be a, a lever to move the plot. It may simply be that you have to you have to decide to do this because that brings the moral dimension in. Whereas if they just announce they're invading, mm-hmm. you don't have that uh, you don't have that dilemma. And of course, all this is leading up to. I have it on my list here. Maybe you do uh, the amazing cliffhanger at the end, where Bill's decision has come at the cost of the end of the world. Sure, but the Doctor has his eyesight back. Uh, so um, I don't know where it's going yet. Uh, I guess the other thing they could be playing with, I'm just this off the top of my head now, is the thing about appeasement right? Uh, or collaboration in the Second World War. Are you better off? Will you save civilian lives if you let the invaders in because then they kill fewer people, uh, even though you are then victims of an oppressive regime and your populace will suffer in all sorts of other ways? But... I mean, it's an amazing thing to be talking about at 7 o'clock on BBC really One. Yeah, on yeah, Saturdays. it's fantastic. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say, uh, ask you about quickly, uh, and just because it's come up on our mm. listeners' group on Facebook, is whether the monks are not as they appear. Do you, well, do, first of all, do you think they're meddling? <laughs> I don't think they're meddling. Oh, I do think, think they're, they're cyber? I do. I think the way yeah. they talk, um, we're just opening their mouths and then the sound comes out. I'm going to guess that that is a coincidence. Right. That kind of thing has happened before. Uh, and if if uh, if you're familiar with my take on Doctor Who past, you might remember that I thought that um, the resolution of the whole Doctor is dead, Shores of Lake Silencio, was bungled, not least because there are two different equally good explanations of how an alternative Doctor could have got there and better planning of the whole season wouldn't have had both, I can't remember what it's called now, both the the robot doctor possibility and the uh, um, flesh the doctor, doctor possibility. Mm. Uh, so these things can come up twice in one season. Uh, I, I, You wonder uh, about it. I think, no way of knowing, I've no inside no, information, no, my guess would be that it's pure coincidence that yeah. there's no connection between the monks and the Cybermen. It's just there's one line which is something like, we're not as we appear. There's something seeded in there about this is not actually what we look like. Well, this is kind of coming on to my third point. Cool. Three things that we like. So my third point uh, is this is, I think, for the first time since Stephen Moffat took over, 
serialized storytelling done right. So when Russell T. Davis took over, uh, he wanted to try and provide something more than the usual Doctor Who kind of anthology show where it's a new story every week. And so we had those little one-word season runners like uh, Torchwood or Bad Wolf. Mm -hmm. But they're very, very light. And if you haven't seen the previous episode or you missed the next episode, it doesn't really make a difference. It's just one little extra thing to notice. When Stephen Moffat took over, he was trying, I think, to do much more complicated season arcs. But uh, the problem was, firstly, these did not often make sense and they were abandoned every so often. And so you get some really extraordinary things like uh, in, in consecutive episodes, Amy's uh, uh, child, her daughter, is taken away from her. And then the next thing that happens is the story Night Terrors, right. which this is never mentioned, but the Doctor just decides that what Amy probably needs right now is a parable about the power of parental love. And they just don't work. So I think you can... I don't expect or necessarily want Doctor Who to be that kind of uh, Breaking Bad you know, season-long story where Babylon, each episode, five. Babylon 5, where each episode is just more of the ongoing saga. Mm. I think its strength is the variety mm. that the anthology format gives it. But what we've got here is, so far, if I include next week's episode as well, four stories, four episodes, Oxygen, Extremists, Pyramid, Lie of the Land, which have to be watched in that order but which I reckon you could sit down and watch any one of them on its own. The only thing you have to know going into Pyramid is the Doctor is blind. blind. It doesn't matter how he's blind. You don't have to, have, you don't have to know all the details of, uh, of um, Oxygen. You just have to know he's blind. And so I think the other remarkable trick this episode does is <laughs> it makes extremists look better <laughs> than it did on its own because... Tom did not worked, like it, everyone. He did not like extremists. It works much better as part of this ongoing story about the monks because the, the, the reason for them running their, frankly, idiotic simulation starts to make a little bit more sense. It's because it fits into a, a bigger part of their MO. That's a really good trick, I think. Uh, and so this is the way to do serialised storytelling in Doctor Who. And it's a little bit frustrating that Stephen Moffat's figured this out just before he leaves. Well, it's one of these things that it's very hard to get much sort of experience of being Doctor Who showrunner until you're Doctor Who showrunner. It's it's one of those one-of-a-kind jobs. There aren't that many showrunner jobs no. in uh, British television and either, I, are there? I wonder if the year off helped. I really do, because, I mean, I know there's, he, he will have had Sherlock and other things as well, but I wonder if the year off just kind of helped him to be able to sit down and actually plan this out in a bit more detail, because mm. some past episodes felt a little bit like that'll do. And I think he was a victim, certainly, of episodes moving around within the season yeah, because sure. of things completely out of his control. I believe the Night Terrors was I an episode right, like yes. that. Where yes, it, was it was meant to be in. earlier in the season, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, I do agree that this season holds together incredibly well yeah. uh, and is it has simplicity and it has clarity mm. and that's wonderful to behold. My third thing is about the Doctor's blindness. I just really liked the combination lock sequence. Now, it is hilarious that it's a visual clicky wheel combination lock in a really high-powered lab that is really funny but <laughs> i do like the fact that that there's just no way out of this yeah. that i can see i know people said oh, why can't he hack into bill's phone and get i don't know i'm sure there are ways i'm sure we can hand wave there's time it running out mm. he's got very very limited time to solve this problem but yeah even if it was a three by three pad mm. he'd be able to work it out but just this 
is he can't do it and i really i just loved that sequence I it really goes back that to that that chain of chance plotting everything inexorably leads to this point uh, and f- once you get there it seems inevitable yeah. but it's it's very difficult i think for anyone to have been ahead of it mm-hmm. and figure out that's where we're going to be and there's a lovely faint that the blindness has apparently paid off because that's how the doctor is able to find this lab that's mm-hmm. that flash of insight but we're not done with it yet this bit is not so good. It's that ridiculous prop. <laughs> it just looks like it looks like it's made out of Duplo. And it, now, to be fair, this is a this is a difficult problem for a writer. You've got to have something which prevents the Doctor from going through a door. Yes, it can't be sol- solvable by a sonic screwdriver. So it's got to be kind of mechanical in nature, and uh, it's got to be something which requires uh, sight. Uh, not just shapes, because he's got the the glasses can sort of he's tell got him daredevil shapes. senses yeah, yeah, exactly, uh, and so the solution isn't bad, but combination locks uh, sort of come in three kinds. They're the kind of twiddly ones you have on safes that wouldn't work, uh, and they're the they're, as you say the keypad style things. But if it's only a six digit code, then Rachel Denning can just call it out to him, and he can f- do it by feel. He can type it in. So instead, we have a bike lock, which no super powered lab in the world has ever had. However. I did think about this, and I did come up with a better solution. Cool. I would so, love to hear it. From a pure design point of view, you're designing a lab, please put a combination lock on that door. Obviously, it would be a keypad. But a four- or six-digit number would be known by Rachel Denning. So my solution is that for security reasons, they have to change the, let's say, 15-digit number every couple of weeks. And then because Tony Gardner is hungover, he thinks he won't be able to remember the new one, so he's he's got it written down. Right. So neither... Neither lab worker uh, remembers it, and the only place it's written down is inside the door, which is the place where you need it, because yeah. it will get you out. So it's like on a post-it on exactly. his side. Exactly. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah, that is very good. I am available. Uh, I've, got, <laughs> I've now written three big Finnish scripts for Doctor Who. If anyone at the BBC would like to employ me to write any more, I am available. Oh, fantastic. Um, yes, uh, that, is, that is very good. I was thinking of something colour-coded. Oh, Do you yeah, remember that, that old too. 80s toy? Simon. Had, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You could yes. have a Simon yeah. lock. That would be But again, weird. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's just four quadrants. Yeah. So provided you know which quadrant is what colour, you can still do it by feel. Yeah. She'd have to know that. Though. I, yeah, I'm not a visual person. I'm not sure I'd be like, is the yellow at the top of the... I can't remember. I can't remember. Um, so I'm afraid my didn't like is one of your likes a bit as well is that I felt this was a bit like a middle episode of Doctor Who in the 80s. You know, sometimes when you'd have a four-part or a six-part and there would Mm. be two in the middle that was essentially reasons to run down corridors and talk to people. I felt there was a little bit of that in there. Now, when I went back and thought about it, actually a load of stuff happened. There was a plane that shot a missile at a pyramid. Someone dumped a submarine end-on into the sand um wars were nearly begun and started but to me it felt like a lot of theorizing around the subject um we both do improv Mm -hmm. and one of the things in improv that i find is that if you talk about theory if you talk in generalities then scenes can quickly get a little um, you need to be specific you need specifics right this felt particularly about this the consent side of things like what, what should we do to stop war it felt a little bit like 
they were playing with theories a little bit. And Stephen Moffat has said that a lot of Doctor Who is people standing around in rooms urgently. <laughs> and I do appreciate that. I sort of think... I. I know what you mean about certainly middle episodes of Doctor Who. I've uh, I've seen uh, grown men willingly throw themselves out of windows rather than watch part four of The Time Monster uh, because nothing happens uh, and then it doesn't happen again. Uh, but I, I think middle epi- middle installments are often the best. Sure. I th- you know, uh, Empire Strikes Back is the best of the Star Wars films. Uh, the Two Towers is by a long way the best of the Lord of the Rings films. Because middle episodes don't have to do all the boring work of setting things up. They don't have to do all the incredibly difficult work of paying everything off. They can just be in be. the world. I have to say that obviously I wrote these down before we started talking and you had already gone some way to convince me that it wasn't true. But I didn't have anything else to say so i said it anyway but yes i've got one more niggle then if that's allowed yeah of course uh one of the hardest things i think that uh directors do is giving you a clear sense of geography of where things are in space with relation to each other i didn't quite feel that worked in the lab i there are like two different chambers that look very similar and i was never quite sure which bit was safe and which bit wasn't and i I kind of had to sort of stop and readjust when i realized the doctor was trap because that hadn't that wasn't sort of quite clear to me that i thought i don't know if it's the script i think it's probably the directing i think it's the, the way the combination of the the set design and the way the whole thing is shot mm. I remember listening years and years ago to the director's commentary of die hard because i have a very rich and full life and listening to because john mctiernan's a really amazing director of uh, visuals but in the early parts of the movie where there's not a lot of action going on. He's just talking about, all I'm really doing is setting up geography. You have to be really clear about where these spaces are in relation to each other, who can see what from what vantage point, and so on and so on. So that's all, I'm really, that's all this shot is doing, is just setting up geography. And you don't appreciate it when you're watching because you're just taken in by the story, and that's the point. Yeah. You know these things without having them pointed out to you. And I didn't quite know the geography of that lab, even though we'd spent a lot of time there. Yeah, and I think a problem there is that the BBC have limited resources and a lot of the locations are scouted rather than constructed. I would imagine in Die Hard, things were constructed to exactly his specifications. The biggest, the the, uh, view outside the window was apparently the biggest painted cyclorama that had ever been constructed up to that point. I'm sure it's been uh, exceeded since then. Well, now you just... Now you just do it with CGI. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, so I, I, I wonder if that's probably a problem with the budget yeah. more than anything. But no, I, I agree. There does seem to be an awful lot of different chambers. And it was mm. like, well, he must be safe because he's not liquefying. So <laughs> yes. that's how I know. <laughs> oh, can I give one other, one other um, really good thing? Yeah, of course. Uh, just uh, all mine are quite big. But one little thing I thought was the, the way in which people disintegrate into dust was beautifully done. I've seen that done in the past, and it just kind of looks a bit pixely, a bit video bit game. Buffy. It, it, yeah, exactly. But it really looks solid. There's like kind of two phases to it. There's an ex- initial sort of puff phase, yeah, and then something a bit more solid. Then that collapses too. It's just gorgeous. And they did it four times. So mm. just absolutely gorgeous. Here is the haiku for the pyramid at the end of the world. Pop-up heritage pushes doomsday clock forward. Bill gives her consent. It's Andy. Woo! It's Andy. Yeah. It's time for classic Andy. The stuff he saw inside the show that he thinks that they planned. I got distracted throughout this episode. The reason was that in Logopolis, the fourth doctor shows Adric how the TARDIS chameleon circuit should work. He designs a pyramid, including a door in the middle of the ground level. 
So all the way through, I was thinking that the pyramid could be a TARDIS, most likely Missy's. It still could be. Who's to say it isn't until shown otherwise? Another prediction from the Oodcast, the podcast that predicted Matt Smith would wear a fez. I like the return to the theme of the companion's love for the Doctor being in the way of resolving the danger. We've seen it in The Curse of Fenric and the God Complex, and in both instances, the Doctor had to break his companion's trust in him to save the day. I wonder if the lie of the land will do similar. Judging by the trailer, it's going to be drastic. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts. Where can we find you on the internet? And uh, you mentioned some sort of Doctor who stuff, if you would yeah, like to plug uh, if it. if you want more of this kind of stuff, you can come to tomsolinski.co.uk slash blog and join literally eight other people who read it on a regular basis. Me, also, I, I read it. Uh, there's also uh, movie reviews and uh, some tech reviews and other like essays on things when I have the time. We'll be back next week to review the episode the lie of the land but until then please write in join the community talk to us email us any of that good stuff we want to talk about doctor who that's why you start a podcast it's to talk about the thing that you like until then see you next week cheerio that's great it starts with a mistake running late since glasses break also there's a drunk lab mate Inside a pyramid, listen to the creature Three massive armies bring the world to its knees Enigmatic weight, dear love, consent Leaders start to panic with the fear of death Hellfire, minutes left counting threatens of the human race Project with a higher with a rotting face Block ticking in a hurry, sword of damage Please just above your neck Team by team, soldiers battle, bomb run down Look at that low plane, find them Uh-oh, tractor beam, nuclear submarine What to do, save the world, represent He had doubts, better listen to your president Talking of the rapture and the gift of foresight Sight? So unconvincing, vote winning, else feeling feelings of right It's the end of the world as we know it It's the end of the world as we know it it's the end of the world as we know it, and he's still alive. Midnight final hour sucked in, trigger power, burn, die, undo, turning into grey goo. Lock him in a lab and wait, tension, escalate, bacteria, incinerate. Start the bomb, time to go, door lock, uh oh, watch your friend die, no time to cry, this means no fear, decision time is here, combination, supplication, litany of lies, offer her solutions, offer her salvation, no, decline, it's the end of the world as we know it, it's the end of the world as we know it, it's the end of the world as we know it, we still fly. It's